Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more on Instagram at Christ Chapel College. So glad you guys are here. My name is Ben Fuquay. I'm one of the pastors around here and uh, really do love, uh, love this Sunday and specifically love the morning crowd on this Sunday because we learn who hates running um, is what happens. So uh, way to go. You're my people, man. Running's the worst. Uh, so I, I get that you're not at the Cowtown Marathon um, or you just love God's word that much. It could be that also. I'll give you credit for that. Hey, we're going to jump into Psalm 51 today, and I get this really humble privilege to get to preach through uh, Psalm 51 for you today. It's a incredibly rich 19 verses, uh, this chapter, and uh, I mean, there's you could write a sermon based on every single one of those verses, and so I'm going to uh, hit it pretty quickly because there's so much uh, depth to get there, but we got to do a little bit of recap uh, first too. And what we're talking about this morning is we're talking about repentance. And repentance is this biblical idea, very churchy theological word. It really just kind of exists in theological, spiritual spaces is kind of where this idea comes from. But we talked about it last week, if you were here, because we've been going through the book of 2 Samuel. And so we've been looking at the life of King David. And last week we saw this idea of repentance show up. And uh, repentance is an incredibly important part of the Christian life. I mean, it is crucial to the Christian life. I would say it's one of the most important aspects of your Christian walk if, if you're walking with Christ. Um, Proverbs uh, talks about what, what a Christian or what it looks like to live without repentance is like a dog that continues to return to its vomit, which is a horribly graphic kind of gross picture that the Bible paints of this idea of repentance is the idea of not doing those things, but a life that we don't understand repentance is we just continue to go back to the same sin patterns, the same things over and over and over again. Um, and last week, Nathan helped us kind of understand what it is in the context of uh, chapter 10, 11, and 12 in Second Samuel, that really it's the idea of owning your sin and really turning away from your sin to Christ. And, and so it looks like, man, God has called us to live this way, to walk this way. Maybe, maybe it's disobedience in our life, un, ungodliness in our life, or maybe it's even apathy in our life. You know, maybe it's not that we need to stop doing something, but maybe it's almost a disobedience that God is calling us to start doing more of something, to, to serve, to step in in ways, and we're just resistant. And whatever that looks like, repentance is the idea of, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it your way. I'm going to shift, and I'm going to do it your way, God, and, uh, which is why it's so crucial to the Christian life and understanding it. And so uh, I want to um, unpack and kind of recap last week. And I'm going to do a kind of quick flyby. Um, I know a lot of you guys uh, heard the sermon from last week or you're familiar with the story of David. Um, but if you're not, I'm going to do a quick flyby. So in 2 Samuel, King David is, is king. And King David is a man after God's own heart, right? It talks about that in scripture that God has given David that title, that God says, that's my boy. You are a man after my own heart. And yet what happens in chapter 10 is David's not where he's supposed to be. 
Um, and he ends up seeing a woman who's in his kingdom named Bathsheba and she's bathing and he's up on a castle and so he can look down and see into a lot of people's courtyards and he sees and he starts lusting after that woman and he sins for that woman, right? He, he sa- it says he sent for her and so David calls and, and if you're the king, you get what you want, right? And, and if you're not the king, you do what you are told and so he sins for her, he sleeps with her, she gets pregnant and David's sin has now complicated things, right? It is this moment in David's life. Up to this point, he's been this crazy, godly, faithful. I mean, he has chosen to do it God's way over his way. And now here in 2 Samuel, we see this sin that um, so many people can fall into where he says, I want to do it my way. I've done it God's way, but that looks really enticing. And that looks, I, I want to I do what I want to do. And it compounds and he gets this woman pregnant. And so he then is at this fork in the road for the rest of that chapter is trying to cover his sin. And one of the ways he does it is that woman, Bathsheba, her husband's name is Uriah. He's away at war. And so obviously he's going to get found out because the husband is at, is at battle and at war far away. And so everyone's going to know if she gets pregnant. Okay, fingers are going to point to David. And so he actually sends for Uriah, brings Uriah back home. His plan is I'm going to make, I'm going to let Uriah kind of come home, relax, you know, he'll get to sleep with his wife, kind of get off the battlefield for a little bit. And then when she's pregnant, I can kind of, oh yeah, my sin is covered and hidden. Well, he doesn't do that. Uriah doesn't fall for that. He says, man, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna rest and relax and sleep with my wife while all my soldiers are in the battlefield sleeping in tents. And so he doesn't, he sleeps outside. um, And and then he goes back to battle. All of this to say in chapter 11, um, what happens is David ends up covering his sin by having Uriah killed in battle. He has this husband killed in battle and then takes Bathsheba as his wife. I mean, it's sin compounded on sin compounded on sin as he tries to hide and avoid and escape. And at every fork in the road, as a result of his own consequence, he he has an opportunity to repent or to not repent and to just keep covering and hiding it and trying to manage and minimize his own mistakes. And uh, and it just leads to, I mean, literally having a, a guy murdered and, and taking this woman that he's impregnated as his wife to help cover his sin. And so what happens that we looked at last week is there's a prophet named Nathan and Nathan comes to David and basically busts him and says, hey, God knows what you did. And basically holds up a mirror to King David of look at your sin, look at what you've done. And man, David breaks right? David hits rock bottom, and he sees his sin, and he breaks, and uh, the baby that he, um, that he and Bathsheba have, right, it's this baby that's really sick, and it doesn't look like it's going to make it, and, and, and all of these consequences of this man's decisions have really led him ultimately to look in a mirror and say, this is my sin, and, and, he, and he does this in the midst of awful choices. He repents, and we see him and he, he starts fasting, he stops eating and he gets on his face and the baby's maybe gonna die and he, he just starts grieving and praying and crying out to God and the baby ends up passing away and, and he ends up then from this place of grief, getting up, washing himself off, eating and going back in to worship and fellowship with God. And, and there's still these ripples and consequences of his mistakes throughout his life, but his fellowship with his God right, that he has been neck and neck with, just side by side with throughout, that God has been leading him through. He restores this fellowship uh, with God. And, um, and so it's this really important picture of what does repentance really look like? 
one of the most important things, if you say, man, I want to follow Christ, I want to walk with the Lord, then understanding what true repentance looks like is massive. And we see two things um, here in, in David's narrative. One, I think it's sobering. We see that this man after God's own heart has this huge failure. And I think one of the things that does for us as, as, as people who maybe are aspiring or desire or are following God is that anybody, anybody can be prone to slip and fall and find themselves in moral failure, right? That sin is crouching at the door of everyone's life and would love to snag us, and it can happen to anyone. This is David. I mean, he is a man after God's own heart, and he totally blows it. And so I think there's a caution in that, but then there's also a sensitivity of no one is beyond sin. And so what does freedom from that look like? What does returning look like? What is turning away from that sin that every one of us does can and will get stuck in in different seasons of our life. What does it look like to repent and turn away from that? And, and David does that really well. David models repentance, which is the difference between letting your sin ruin you and define you or letting God's grace restore and forgive you, right? That's what repentance does. It's the difference between if I don't repent, then I'm just letting my sin ruin me and wreck me and define me as opposed to choosing repentance and experiencing God's restoration and experiencing God's forgiveness. That's why we're preaching this sermon. That's why we took a break from 2 Samuel to say let's slow down and just hit this one uh, chapter of Psalms because we think it's massively important to dig a little deeper. And here's the thing. Here's why we're in Psalm 51. We're in Psalm 51 because we get a behind-the-curtain look at exactly what this repentance looked like for David. Because while David, in the story of 2 Samuel, was grieving and, and sobbing and crying out to God for repentance and then returns to worship, while he's doing that, we get a snapshot of his journal. We get a snapshot of his prayer to God and his interacting of his quiet time and journal with God and that journal entry is Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is the psalm that David wrote in the midst of this breaking point in his life. In the midst of being busted by Nathan, caught in his sin, and that turn back to God, we get to see his prayer to God. And so that's why we're going to be there and slow down on it and kind of camp out and we're going to see uh, really a handful of elements. And it doesn't cleanly break down like, oh, the, this is phase one of repentance and then phase two of repentance is this. It's not this clean structured thing. It's a it's a man's flow of consciousness as he's going before his God. And so I want to read the whole thing to you. I think it's really important. I think it's really under, important. We understand the context of when this is written. Um, but then I want to read the whole thing, all 19 verses in order, and just watch this man cry out to God. And then we're going to kind of stop and we're going to look at, okay, what are the elements that we see in there and how does it apply to us? Okay, here we go. Psalm 51, verses 1 through 19. From David's heart to God. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquities and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. 
purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifices or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Man, I love this chapter. Um, This chapter of scripture is maybe one of the most common chapters of scripture in my personal walk with Jesus because it is the chapter that we go back to as, as like Zach said in the welcome that we are imperfect people who can be prone to wander and prone to sin and repentance and going back to Lord return to me uh, that joy um, of your salvation is so key. So uh, this is huge. I want us to zoom in on, on really just kind of four elements of what this looks like, what repentance from sin looks like that we see here that I think David models so beautifully that I think we're gonna see in the text, but also uh, I want them to be applications for you to walk out of here and say, man, how am I doing? Is that, is that a hurdle for me? Am I not doing this well? Uh, the first one is this. Really an element of repentance of sin is that we own it. Right? We, we see that right off the bat, that there, there has to be a level of ownership uh, of, of what that looks like for one of our elements. And I think we have a slide up here just to throw up there, just as kind of a, a benchmark to say, man, are we owning um, our sin? So that idea of, of owning our sin um, is really tied to this idea of are we taking responsibility for it? Right? Are, are we taking responsibility for our sin? Verse three and verse four, I mean, he does that. David does that. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me, right? Verse, uh, verse nine, he says, hide your face from my sin, my iniquities. He talks about, there is an ownership that, that David has at this point in his life that was different from what was compounding and digging him deeper and deeper and deeper into this pit, right? But at this point by Psalm 51, now the shift is that he started to own it. He's no longer hiding it and pushing it away and pretending it's not there. He owns it. He says, it's my sin. And yet we, if I, if I look in the mirror, man, I, I tend to blame shift, right? When I make mistakes, when I slip up, when I experience those things in the Christian life where I'm like, man, I know I shouldn't do that. I, I blame shift. I blame circumstances. Oh man, it was a crazy week. Or, well, man, I was in this place and this is what happened. And so I blame the circumstances of my life so often for my sin. You the stresses of life or the circumstances around me or the things that were, you know, that were out of my control and I just found myself in this place and so yeah, or, I, or at least I give a percentage of blame to them and I might say like, well, I'll take partial blame but I'll, I'll shift a lot of the blame to circumstances. Uh, I'll, I'll blame maybe my story. Maybe we look to our story and our past to say, well, man, this is how I grew up or this is always what I understood or this is always what, and so I, I will kind of shift it to parts of my story or I'll shift it to other people. I wouldn't have sinned if it wasn't for this person. 
well, man, it's when I'm around these friends that I just make these mistakes, and there's obviously wisdom, a, a huge important wisdom around the, the company we keep and the communities we, we do life with, but when it comes to taking responsibility for our sin, we don't get to blame other people for our sin, right? Well, I'm in a relationship, and this person I'm in a relationship with, they're not doing their part, they're not leading me well or helping me, and so I'm stumbling in these ways, and we blame shift, right? And it keeps us from this incredibly important foundational aspect to experience forgiveness and, and to really experience repentance so that we can experience forgiveness is gonna start with do we even own it in the first place? Are we taking responsibility that the source of our sin is us? Not our circumstances, not other people. The source of our sin is God, this is my heart. Yeah, those circumstances might bring things out of me, but man, the roots of my heart are shallow or they're attached to my selfishness or my coping, all of those things Man, our source of sin is our own hearts, and we have to acknowledge that. David does all throughout this psalm. All of Scripture points to the fact that our hearts are deceitful. They'll, they'll trick us so often. Um, that's why God offers us new hearts, but man, we've got to acknowledge where that sin comes from. Um, but also, taking responsibility for your sin, which is so crucial to your walk, it, it's yes, it's acknowledging where it comes from, but it's also acknowledging who it's against. So part of owning our sin is owning who are we sinning against. And look at verse four. David says, and this is a crazy controversial statement if you think about the context that David is saying this. He says, against you, he's talking to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So he's saying that second part of that verse is, hey, you deserve whatever your judgment, you're right because I'm wrong. So whatever your judgments, you're blameless. You are not at fault, God. I deserve your judgment for my sin. There is a penalty for my sin that is right and true. But, but the first part of that, he says, against you and you alone, I've sinned. David is pointing out that our sin is against ultimately God and God alone exclusively, right? Repentance is about our sin that separates us from fellowship with God right? This sin that separates our fellowship, our, our intimacy, our ability to walk with the Lord. That is what um, it's about. And we could preach a whole nother sermon on relational reconciliation, right? The horizontal relationships in our life and how our sin affects other people in our life and how we can reconcile those relationships. That's a whole nother topic. In fact, um, just to give you a heads up, um, next week we're going to do a panel up here um, with me and, and Amy and uh, Nathan and some people, and we're going to kind of talk through, uh, we're covering a passage that's really, really difficult, really difficult, and just um, full transparency for, for you all. Uh, one of the passages that is coming up in Second Samuel that we've been covering is the story of a sexual assault. And so pastorally, we want to stop and slow down and just um, shepherd some time with you guys about heavy, hard stuff in our life and how we deal with it and how we find forgiveness. So we want you, just out of love and respect for you, to know what you're walking into, be prayerful as you walk into it, but also uh, know that we can't avoid hard things that we want to, we really want to love you well and walk through gently and how God can heal and restore and what we do with some really hard stuff that we know has touched um, so, so many people uh, in our community. And so, uh, right, so next week we can talk a little bit more about how the vertical directly impacts healing horizontally and relationships and boundaries and all of those kind of things. Um, but this, this kind of repentance, this is about the vertical, right? My sin is affecting my 
relationship with God. It separates me. It's against God and God alone. Think about how crazily offensive that would be if you're Uriah's mom and you hear that, right? Uriah got murdered because of this guy's sin. And he's saying, my sin is, think of your Bathsheba. And it's, oh, my sin is against God, right? There's an element of that to be like, wait, wait, your sin affected way more than just you and God. But this puts in perspective how great of an offense it is to God, right? It puts in perspective that this is not an avoidance or an ignoring of horizontal effects of our sin, right? Our sin affects people close to us in huge ways, people close and far from us in huge ways. But this is a prayer here in Psalm 51 that is a depth of acknowledgement of how severe of a betrayal it is to God before we can even get to those horizontal broken relationships, is there an ownership of not just this sin came from me, not blame shifting, but also this sin is against you. We just sang this song, Christ our King, be enthroned forever. Do we believe that he is truly our King? And do we believe that our sin is a consistent betrayal against the allegiance that's easy to sing about him? Yeah, God, be enthroned forever. But then I look at my life and I think, am I living a life in line, allegiant to, yes, you are my king? Or am I saying, hey, uh, you're my king, it's easy to sing about, but now I'm gonna do what I want to do. And that betrayal is deep and it's, and it's huge. It's a perspective shift. And if, listen to this, if we minimize the depth and the costliness of our sin, if we minimize that, if we say, well, our sin, yeah, we know it's bad, but I'm gonna minimize that. If we do that, we're gonna minimize the freedom and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? We, we're gonna do that. And so often we know what's coming. Oh, well, Jesus is coming and Jesus is gonna save us and there's gonna be grace. So many of us who grew up in church know where the sermon's gonna land and so it's easy to say, well, we're not gonna um, focus on that and, and I think there's gonna be a shallowness then to our lack of ownership. And I think there's gonna be a shallowness then to our repentance, and I think there's gonna be a shallowness then to the freedom and the power that we get to experience through Christ when we own it. Our sin's a debt. It creates a debt in our life. And the shallowness with which we own that debt will be the shallowness which, with we appreciate the forgiveness we have. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was in Chick-fil-A, drive-through, picking up breakfast, uh, and my next door neighbor was in the car in front of me, and like, she saw me through the rear mirror and waved and all that kind of stuff. And then when I got to the window to pay for my food, she had already paid for my food, right? Which was cool. So then, you know, later that day, actually that evening, I saw her and her husband on the other side of the fence and got to wave at them and thank and chat with them. Hey, that was so cool. Thanks for buying my Chick-fil-A breakfast, um, right? Which, which is an appreciation that I have for her buying my breakfast. However, if I would have gotten home and found out that, that my neighbors would have paid the mortgage on my house, it would have been massively different, Right? The depth of my appreciation to my neighbors is directly tied to, th there's a difference between thank you for buying my Chick-fil-A breakfast and thank you for paying hundreds of thousands of dollars so that I don't have a mortgage anymore, right? Our depth of ownership is going to be directly tied to our depth of worship and appreciation and a life of walking in this forgiveness that we're going to eventually see here in a second. So uh, that's huge, man. And we downplay it all, all kinds of ways. We we downplaying it. I want to give you three ways we downplay it, and then we'll, we'll land on the last three um, kind of elements. Here's three ways that we downplay um, kind of this, this concept of um, our, our own ownership of that thing. We, we compare ourselves to others. 
right? I can downplay my ownership of my sin because I can compare myself not vertically to the one I've sinned against, but horizontally to at least I'm better than that guy, right? At least I'm, at least I'm not doing what that girl does. At least I don't do as much as, and we compare our, ourselves to other people. It's why we love gossip so much. It's why gossip is so attractive to a part of our hearts that's honestly a little wicked because if I hear gossip about, oh, this guy did that, there's an element of, oh, okay, right? Everyone else can kind of can kind of get lowered a little bit and I feel like, okay, good. And so all of a sudden it helps me minimize my own sin. It helps me downplay my own sin because gossip and I can feed gossip. Hey, you know this person, I hear something and it becomes juicy because it helps insulate a heart that I want to callous because I don't want to deal with my stuff and it's easier to look and be like him and her. Did you hear about this? And that comparison game is a, is a trap and it downplays. The other way we downplay our sin is what I alluded to earlier, cheap grace. So many of us downplay our ownership because we know where this sermon's gonna end. Jesus, he forgives us. He cleanses us. He makes us white as snow and we know so many of us where it's gonna end. And we take that and we say, man, that's grace. And we turn that really costly grace, what it cost our heavenly father to lay his perfect son's life down for us. And we say, oh, cool, he's got us. He's got us, no big deal. He's gonna, he's gonna cover us. And we take it and we turn it into this really cheap grace that just kind of becomes license for us to not own it, not really repent. Ah, he's got me covered in, in the end. And that's a really, really unhealthy, unbiblical thing to do. We apply cheap grace and we know where it ends and then we live however and there's something really broken about that that we'll talk about or we just avoid and ignore. We just don't own it because we avoid and we ignore it and we believe this lie that, man, I just gotta get it out of my system and I'm gonna wait till I hit rock bottom and that's why so often when we mess up once, you know, in that, in that thing that's like, oh man, we, then it spirals and we just almost have to hit rock bottom before we really will go to repentance rather than quickly having a heart to say, oh my gosh, look at this little sin. This is offensive to God. I wanna bring it to you. I wanna own it and then walk through the rest of these parts of the process and experience forgiveness. So um, David owns it. This is my sin, he says, and it's against you. It's huge. Second thing he does really, really well in Psalm 51 that we've got to take note of is he doesn't just own it, he grieves over it. And you see all throughout this chapter, he is grieving, crying out to God. I mean, he's writing this Psalm 51 on his face, grieving over what he's done and who he's done it against the Lord. In this story, I mean, David, he fasts, he, he, covers, himself in, in ash, he covers himself in ashes and, and doesn't, doesn't eat and just sits there and says, God, please forgive me the weight of my sin. I mean, he, he really sits and grieves over it. And as I was preparing the sermon, I think this part was the hardest part to think through and pray through. Because nothing I'm about to say in this sermon has the power to activate your heart to grieve over your sin. I don't have the words for that. That's not, that's not a power that I have in a sermon, but I think it's such an important thing. We become callous. Our sin and our repentance becomes theological categories for us, but man, we don't really grieve over our sin, and that's something that I need the Spirit of God to help me. Right? What, what is, grief is a, is a natural thing that God has um, created in our life, and it's when we experience loss and when we experience hurt, that's where this healthy emotion of grief is going to come, but it's also a really vulnerable place to be. Those of you who experience deep loss or those of you who are experiencing deep hurt, understand that. 
you don't want to stay in that place. You don't want to, you want to cope and, and, and you know, insulate your heart because it's such a vulnerable, heavy, lonely at times place to be able to grieve. And so when we grieve over our sin, how do we get there? How are we not callous? Well, I don't have the power to do that. Our grief is gonna be tied to this idea of our personal and intimate relationship with the one we've hurt, the, the one we've betrayed, right? Our grief is going to indicate how close we are to the heart of God. What does that intimate personal relationship look like with God? And so grief is going to be a combination between revealing the intimacy we have with the relationship with the God of the universe who we are given access to and the hurt and betrayal that we have put towards that. If I hurt somebody, if I hurt a stranger, if after this sermon you come up to me and we chat for a little bit and I say something that makes fun of you or offends you and I hurt your feelings in some way and you circle back and say, hey, that really hurt my feelings when you made fun of my blouse or whatever I did, I don't know. Um, there's a level where like, oh man, I'm sorry. I'll feel bad about that. But if I hurt my wife, right? If I, grieve, if I hurt my wife, I do something that hurts her feelings. If my wife is, is crying, if my wife is upset, if my wife is burdened by something that I did, there is a totally different level of grief that I'm gonna experience from more of a stranger as opposed to my wife, my, the favorite person in my entire world. And I did this thing to cause it. And the intimacy and the closeness I have in that relationship is gonna dictate the depth and seriousness of my grief. If we're not grieving over our sin, I, I, don't, I don't want you to just put in really somber worship music to, to help stimulate your emotions. I want you to draw closer to God and know him personally so that you can say, God, you are my father. You are my God. I see your goodness. I experience and walk with you, and yet I've betrayed you. That's where a healthy grief comes from. Um, Verse 16 and 17 uh, in Psalm 51, David says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I will give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. He's saying, hey, you don't want me to just clean myself up. It's not just about an offering. Hey, let me come into church, and that'll kind of check some boxes. Hey, I blew it last weekend. Next weekend, I'm going to go to church. I'm going to do some, I'm going to listen to a podcast. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do something to kind of clean up my heart as my offering, as my penance. God, sorry I blew it. Here's something nice that I'm supposed to do as my offering to make it right. He says, no, 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 that's not where I want you to start. I want you to be broken and contrite over what you've done. I want you to be broken and contrite over what, what you've done. That's what God is looking for, not for me to do some good deeds to balance out the scale. And here's, here's why, and this is huge. We don't just end after this second point. Let me, let me show you the third element of repentance is we then believe God's grace and God's power. We don't stay in our grieving. We don't stay, oh God, I'm so sorry. That is a really important part that there's a depth to grief. But then we believe God has the ability to heal and restore and show grace and show forgiveness and offer power and healing and freedom from whatever it was. That's massive. David believes that, right? All throughout this, I mean, he is crying out to God. I mean, he is saying, you have the, you have the power to show me mercy. You have the power to make me white as snow. You have the power. He is believing that and saying back to God, will you do this? Will you do this? Will you do this? Because he knows I'm grieving over my sin, but you have the power to not just forgive it, but to make me clean. You have the power to restore to me joy. In the midst of knowing that I don't deserve that, 
God, would you, those bones that you've broken, will you restore and, and again and again? And, and even in the story, in the narrative, in 2 Samuel, remember, he's on his face, he's grieving, he's not eating, right? His, his baby is about to die, and his, his people, the king's guys, like his right-hand men, the baby dies, and they've got to go in and give him the bad news. Hey, your baby didn't make it. And they're sitting there talking to each other, this is going to go from bad to worse. Like, I've never seen him this upset. He hasn't eaten in days. He's got his face down in the dirt. He's crying out to God. And now, this new layer of, of just consequence of his sin, we gotta go break this news to him. He's already bad. I don't know how much worse it can get. So they go and they break the news to him. And what's he do? If you remember from last week or if you've heard the story, he gets the news and he gets up. And he goes and he washes himself. And he goes and eats a big meal. And then he goes into worship. And the guys are like, what? What just happened? Like, you were broken and sad and grieved, but then you got up and you washed yourself off. You didn't stay grieving. You didn't stay beating yourself up. You got up, cleaned up, ate. You hadn't eaten and you'd been fasting and grieving over what, you, what you'd done and crying out to God for mercy. And then you got up and you went and you, and you worshiped. You went and reapproached God boldly because he believes God's grace and he believes God's power. And it wasn't built on how clean he could think, clean things up. It was built on this is your character. And so I'm gonna get up and I'm gonna go reapproach you. That's massive. We should grieve over our sin, but we don't stay there. When we stay there, that sin becomes shame that isn't from the Lord. The enemy would love to let us do. Some of us need to hear, quit minimizing your sin own it and grieve over it. But some of us, okay, you're grieving over it, but the enemy has you stuck in that step of I'm just beating myself up. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. And that shame is not from the Lord. That shame is an enemy in your life that wants to keep you from experiencing his grace and his power and his forgiveness that comes from it. And David gets up and says, you can heal, you can forgive, and you have, and I'm gonna walk back and I'm gonna, I'm gonna have an even deeper, more intimate relationship with you because it was never based on my track record. It was based on how good and how gracious and how kind of a father you are. And so I don't have to reapproach with a few notches down to earn my way. I am still the same son. And that is this beautiful transformative thing. Romans 8 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's huge. We don't minimize grieving and owning our sin, but we also don't minimize the power of God to say, yep, and I have fully forgiven that. Not partially, fully forgiven it because that is how powerful the cross of Jesus Christ is. When my son hung on that cross 2,000 years ago, it had the power to forgive and make new all of your brokenness, all of your hurt. That's how powerful our God is. It's a beautiful thing, and that is how kind he is to offer that, and that kindness in Romans 2 says is what leads us to that repentance because we're not running to a judgmental God with his arms folded. We're running back. We're getting up, cleaning ourselves up, and reapproaching a God in worship that doesn't have his arms folded. He's saying, yeah, I am kind. I am gracious. Come back in relationship with me, and then the last thing is this, and this is huge. Yeah, we believe God's grace and power, but also we have to receive God's transformative grace and power. I think a lot of times we get stuck right there. 
Um, we, we get through the first three steps and we think, all right, man, I got to own what I did. I got to own my sin against the Lord. And then we think, man, I got to uh, not only own it, I got I to really acknowledge, God, what this is and how offensive and how, and how gross and how ugly this is to you. And then I got to believe that, yes, you can forgive. And, make new, and then we stop there. And there's a huge difference between believing somebody gives you a gift and actually receiving and opening it, right? There's a massive difference. I believe this person has given me a gift Right? My, my, my dad, I believe, is, is giving me a gift. But it's really different to say, wow, my dad, I'm actually opening. I'm actually receiving. I'm actually experiencing this gift. And that's huge. And so, so many of us just stop after point three, and it becomes a theological category that we know he does forgive. We know he is gracious and kind, but we just stop there. Right? We, we, we stop. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. And one of those reasons, because what's happening when we receive that gift is there is power in that. There's power in, in owning and grieving and then, and then believing and receiving his forgiveness. It, it transforms our life because the Holy Spirit in us gives us new hearts. I mean, for, for 20 years, I've watched in ministry, literally people's hearts get changed because we believe the Holy Spirit for those who are in Christ transforms broken hearts slowly, usually not light switch, although there's some people whose testimony were like, man, I was this way and now I'm this way. For me, it's more of a, less of a light switch and more of a dimmer, you know, like slowly I look back and I see what he's doing in my heart, you know, kind of ever slowly and progressively and I praise God for him. But, but man, that Holy Spirit is at work and the power of God that literally changes our desires to the things I used to want to chase after when we do this properly, I don't want to anymore. I don't have the same, I don't, I'm not drawn to it in the same way because there's power in the Holy Spirit and there's a few reasons that doesn't happen and one of them, one of them might be that you don't have the Holy Spirit in your life, that you are not saved, that the Holy Spirit does not live in you. You've never surrendered your life to Christ and maybe you're here and, and you know that that's the case in your life and you're still searching. You didn't grow up with all this stuff, right? In college, you're searching and you're trying to figure out what do I believe I love that you're here. Praise God that you're here. You're in the right place. Keep asking questions. We believe this. Week after week, we're gonna preach what we believe is true and has changed our lives. So keep coming and listening, but also know that if you have yet to surrender your life with Christ, then that power that we're talking about, if you just acknowledge the first three steps, you're not gonna experience that fourth and final step of receiving it and experiencing the power of God, maybe sometimes ever baby step slowly, you're not gonna experience that until you have said, I need you, God. I need you. I surrender my life to Christ and Christ alone. And until you are surrendered your life with Christ and are, are saved, and then you have this Holy Spirit working in you. And it's a beautiful thing. And, and some of you have just settled for a really shallow gospel right, have settled for a, oh yeah, God, I, I believe God, and I've checked the box, and I prayed a prayer one time, and so I, I think I'm good, and you've yet to really see the depth of what God has done as surrender, and that's huge, and that's really important, and I want you to hear that with such love and compassion. You're in the right place, but I want you to experience actual freedom. I, I don't want it to be the dog returning to his vomit. I don't want those things in my life that I continue to cycle back around that sanctification process where God continues to mature us. It happens after salvation. So first, God, am I yours? And then, Lord, would you keep molding me into the man and the woman that you want me to be? But for all of us, no matter where you are at spiritually, we need this. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, he says. 
That's for all of us, right? That we can say, Lord, either on this side of salvation saying it's still yet to come, I, I need that joy, I need that freedom, or we have been saved, but we have drifted so far from the joy of our salvation and we just stuck in the weeds and our hearts are callous. God, give us a new heart. Show us what real repentance looks like. Show us what owning and grieving and then receiving that forgiveness looks like so we can walk out the new heart that you've given us. And that is a beautiful thing and it's not a one-time thing. The Christian life is a life of daily repentance. It's the muscle we, we exercise on a daily basis to say, God, here I, here I go wander, but Lord, call me back to you. And there he is calling us back to him. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing and looks like owning it, grieving over it, and not staying in that place of shame, but instead receiving the full forgiveness of God and confidence. Um, I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna get back into a song of worship and that song is a song called Jesus Paid It All which um, some of you guys might know well and some of you might not and whether you sing along or whether you just let them sing over you it doesn't, it doesn't matter. What matters is I, I want you to, to use this worship time uh, as a time for you to reflect. For you to reflect on the truth that you're gonna see on the screen on the wall behind me is the truth that the gospel, Jesus showed up 2,000 years ago and paid the debt that we all incurred and continue to incur. He paid for it once and for all. And all of the stains that sin has affected our lives, all of those stains, we don't have to clean them up. He makes us white as snow. And so, man, my hope and my prayer is that you would take God's word and as you worship or as you get worshiped over, you'd remind yourself and reflect, God, is this true? Do I truly believe it and have I received this grace? And if you have, am I continuing to receive it in newer and deeper ways, never growing tired of singing about the fact that you make us new? We need it. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for repentance. This process of turning back to you, we need it. All of us need it. Literally on a daily basis, we need it. So God, would you show us how to be believers who repent quickly? Um, who own our sin quickly and, and then can, can set it down and, and run back to a father who, who loves us and has offered to make us clean if we are in you. And so, Lord, um, you know where we're at. You know what we walked into this room with, uh, and I pray that you would do the work that only you can do, reminding us that you take our stains, you make us white as snow, uh, only you can do that. So, Father, do what only you can do by the power of your Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.